head to a dog park and you're sure to see a greyhound, a pug, or a German shepherd. Which one is most closely related to the wolf? Join us for this episode of Footnoting History as we find out, and along the way, learn what each of these breeds has to teach us about the humans who created them. There's an old saying, show me your dog and I'll tell you what kind of person you are. (laughs) My dog was a neurotic attention seeker who used to eat all the dirt out of the potted houseplants and then vomit in multiple concealed locations for me to find later. Make of that what you will. I discussed in a previous podcast how dogs were humans' first effort in the realm of domestication and that the interaction changed humans as much as it changed dogs. The centrality of dogs to humans' own self-image seems to bear this out. Dogs are still symbols of loyalty and fidelity, And they're the prototypical natural servants of humankind, all too willing to do anything to please their masters. In the last 200 years or so, humans have asked dogs to adapt not just their behavior, but have also affected major changes in dogs' physical bodies, creating breeds as different as the teacup chihuahua to the St. Bernard. As genetic beings, dogs show as much variety as any species on Earth, and more than most, including humans. Yet they can still all interbreed and produce viable offspring. How can we explain the astonishing diversity of dogs? To answer the question, it turns out, we must investigate humans and their social and cultural evolution across centuries and continents, tracing how they shape their canine companions to their own self-image. First, though, we must answer a more fundamental question. What exactly is a breed? The short answer, it's a social construct, and for the most part, what we think of as breeds are the invention of the last 150 years, especially in Western Europe and the U.S., The number of breeds fluctuates from year to year. For example, in 2010, the American Kennel Club, or AKC, recognized 170 breeds, but now they recognize a total of 177. Where did those seven breeds come from? Have dogs really changed so much in four years? The answer is, of course, no. The reason that the proliferation of breeds is possible and can occur over a relatively small number of generations is that a tiny number of genes governs the variation that produces, for example, the size of a Great Dane rather than that of a Sheltie or a Pekingese. So even major changes in appearance can occur, despite the majority of underlying genetic similarities remaining. Our modern idea of breeds as a subgroup of the species that share certain physical and temperamental characteristics, as I mentioned, is a very new one, really from the latter part of the 19th century. For most of human history, dogs were grouped not by appearance, but by function, which makes a lot of sense if you think about it. It's only relatively recently, say, the last several hundred years, that dogs have been able to be kept purely as pets by large numbers of people, not earning their keep by doing a job, or even serving as food themselves. One of the earliest discussions of dog breeds, if we put breeds in air quotes, was John Caius's De Canibus Britannicis, or On British Dogs, written in the late 16th century. He divided breeds of dogs into 17 groups, including some familiar names, Terrier, Greyhound, Setter, Water Spaniel, Spaniel Gentle or Comforter, Shepherd's Dog, and Turnspit. While some of these breeds, like the Greyhound, for example, still exist, what we notice chiefly about these is that they all refer to what the dogs do, not to what they look like or where they come from. These groups were further divided into three sections, the hunting dogs, like the Greyhound, the working dogs, like the Shepherd or Turnspit, and the pet dogs, which included only one breed, the comforter, a lap dog, basically. This ancient way of reckoning dog breeds may in the long run be the more useful one. In genetic terms, Brian Hare of the Duke Canine Cognition Center informs us that really there are only two meaningful groups of dogs, a collection of nine so-called ancient breeds, which are more closely related to their wolfish ancestors and all other breeds. The nine ancient breeds were the Basenji from Africa, 
the Afghan hound and Saluki from the Middle East and Asia, the Akita, Chow, Dingo, New Guinea singing dog, and Sharpei, all Far East Asian or South Pacific, and the Siberian husky and Alaskan Malamute from the Arctic. What we notice about that list is that none of them come from Western Europe. They were imported there. The breeds of dog that originated in Europe are all of more recent origin, despite the fact that they may resemble a very ancient breed, as does, for example, the greyhound, which we're going to talk about now. So let's talk about the greyhound, the first of our three breeds. The greyhound was one of the breeds mentioned by Caius, but references to the greyhound don't start with him. Greyhounds have, for much of human history, fulfilled the same function. They've been used as hunting or coursing dogs, based on their ability and downright compulsive need to chase fast-moving, fluffy objects. This is the reason why greyhound racing works. The greyhound, like a number of others from the British Isles, including the Irish wolfhound, the deerhound, and the whippet, were originally bred as sight or gaze hounds. This means they track prey by sight, not by scent like bloodhounds or beagles. And you find dogs like this all over the world, fulfilling the same function. The Middle Eastern Saluki, the Russian Borzoi, even the Afghan hound are similar. Physically, greyhounds are long-legged, streamlined but muscular, and can run at what's called a double-suspension rotary gallop, a top-speed gait in which all four of their feet are off the ground at once, extending and retracting with each stride. If you look at still photography of greyhounds mid-run, at full extension, their bodies are almost in a straight line from toes to toes, legs outstretched. This requires an amazing flexibility of spine, a proportionately larger heart to pump the blood necessary, and the highest percentage of fast-twitch muscle of any dog breed. This is the kind of muscle sprinters are always trying to develop. Long, lanky hunting dogs seem to be everywhere you look in ancient art. There are temple drawings of greyhound-like animals in Katalhuyuk, modern Turkey, that date from 6000 BC. They appear in Greek pottery and hunt scenes, often as companions of the unfortunate Acteon, the hunter, whom the vengeful goddess Artemis turned into a stag. In ancient texts on hunting, like the one composed by the Roman Arian in the 2nd century AD, greyhounds or coursing dogs are mentioned frequently, and their finer points are weighed. Greyhounds also feature prominently in a number of legends, though I'll just tell you about one, really. So I've said before, dogs occupy a central position in human self-image, which I think is true. Now, while calling someone a dog per se has never been a compliment, there's a long tradition of positive associations of dogs as loyal and faithful servants, which intensified in the Middle Ages, particularly with greyhounds, for reasons we'll see. Okay, for your consideration, the legend of St. Guinefor, the Holy Greyhound. Seriously. The only reason we have this really unusual story is that a Dominican inquisitor, Etienne de Bourbon, wrote a treatise in the 13th century on superstition on the basis of his considerable experience, and wrote a lengthy digression on the Holy Greyhound, which he singles out as one of the strangest stories he's ever heard. While visiting the region of Dom, near the French city of Lyon, Etienne heard a curious story. According to that story, Guinefort was a greyhound belonging to the local lord. Now the lord and lady were out for the day, and in their absence, a snake crept into the nursery where their child lay unattended in his cradle. The heroic Guinefort, seeing the danger, fought and killed the snake, in the process of setting the cradle and leaving the nursery in disarray. There's blood everywhere. The lord and lady choose this inopportune moment to return, see the chaos in the nursery, and immediately jump to the wrong conclusion. Guinefort gets it in the neck at the hands of his vengeful master, who almost immediately realizes and laments his mistake. Guinefort is then buried with full pomp and is later venerated as a martyr. Anything about this story sound familiar? It should. And that's because you can find versions of this story across cultures. In Wales, his name was Gellert, and there's a similar folk story told in India. You may have read it as the Brahmin and the Mongoose. It was also, with a happier ending, kind of the premise of Lady and the Tramp, actually. 
What's more, Etienne de Bourbon says that Guinefort's cult continued long after his death, with mothers bringing sickly children to Guinefort's shrine for healing, as he was recognized as a protector of children. Jean-Claude Schmidt, who wrote the book about this incident, notes that although the cult was officially suppressed, even as late as the 1930s, it was still apparently remembered there in Dombes. It's a story with enduring appeal. The faithful servant, mistakenly slaughtered, ultimately vindicated. Fun bit of trivia. Guinefort's feast day is August 22nd, smack in the middle of the dog days of summer. The dog days, which are kind of July into August, have been so called since ancient Roman times because they coincide with the rising of Sirius, the dog star, in the night sky. It was originally thought that the chance of contracting rabies also was greater during those days. If we examine the Christian calendar of saints, however, an interesting pattern emerges. The dog days actually coincide with a number of dog-related saints' feast days. There's St. Ulrich on July 4th, patron saint against rabid dogs. St. Roche, a holy man who ministered to plague victims before succumbing to the disease himself. Luckily, he had a famously loyal dog who brought him food and comforted him by licking his sores. Roche is now patron saint of dogs. Finally, St. Christopher's feast day is on July 25th. In the Middle Ages, he was often depicted as a giant with the head of a dog. Christopher is a protector of children, too. According to his legend, he carried the Christ child over a river, sinking under his weight and almost drowning before carrying him safely to the other side. Okay, so where does this nobility of dogs in general, and greyhounds in particular, come from? In the Middle Ages, hunting of game with greyhounds was prohibited by law for all but the upper echelons of society, who were really the only ones with the spare time and money to organize and attend these hunts in the first place. An early 15th century treatise called The Master of Game, written by Edward, the second Duke of York, is considered to be the oldest book in English about hunting. Incidentally, there's a modern edition, which was published in 1904, with a foreword by one of the U.S.'s great hunters, then-President Theodore Roosevelt. In this work, he sings the praises of the greyhound. A hound is true to his lord and his master. A hound is a wise beast and a kind one. A bold hound hunts with the wind when he sees his time. He dreads his master and understands him and does as he bids him. But, alas, I know not now any such hounds. There's an element of nostalgia in a lot of breed literature. The authors very often want you to know precisely why they think their type of dog is the best, but at the same time they hint that dogs ain't what they used to be. This underscores the basic tension in dog breeding. In the act of preserving an existing breed through their interventions, humans are bound to change it as well. At any rate, aristocratic interest in the greyhound continued well into the modern period, because hunting dogs like the greyhound and the activity of hunting with dogs have always been the purview of aristocrats. Greyhounds were some of the first breeds of dog to become standardized. Greyhounds had their first breed register in the early 19th century, a generation before most other breeds, because of aristocratic interest. So, how do we explain how a dog painted on the wall of a Roman villa can resemble a dog in a medieval manuscript a thousand years later, which can in turn resemble your friendly neighborhood greyhound rescue pup? How closely related to these ancient specimens are modern greyhounds? How they look doesn't tell the whole story. English greyhounds were thought to have been imported from the continent into England by Celtic tribes in the 3rd century BC or earlier. But a recent genetic study conducted at Durham University suggested that while breeds like the greyhound resembled the dogs depicted by ancient sources, in fact they've been subject to a great deal of crossbreeding, particularly, again, in the last 200 years. So in the case of the greyhound, its appearance has more to do with the dog's function and human intervention than with the dog's lineage. As they've continued to breed dogs for the same purpose, humans have created and recreated a breed for centuries. Okay. So, on to our next breed, a breed whose appearance has, in contrast to the greyhound, undergone a whole lot of change over time, the pug. The pug's origins are shrouded in mystery. 
No one even knows why the pug is called a pug. It's been variously suggested that pug was a term of endearment, that it's a corrupted form of the Latin pugnus, or fist, since the silhouette of a pug's head looks like a clenched fist, or that since pug was also a word for monkey during the 17th century, it was applied to pug dogs because they kind of, if you squint, resemble monkeys. In case you were wondering, since its arrival in the Western world, the poor pug has pretty much continually been the butt of jokes about its apparent uselessness. As the sportsman's cabinet put it in 1804, perhaps in the whole catalogue of the canine species there is not one of less utility or possessing less the powers of attraction than the pug dog, applicable to no sport, appropriate to no useful purpose. Or, in the somewhat kinder words of the 1891 edition of the American Book of Dogs, We know that everything, whether animate or inanimate, is of some particular utility and has some purpose to serve, and so the pug dog doubtless is here for a purpose. Damning with faint praise there. Or, of course, see the celebrated satire from The Onion that's included in the further reading section. Massive recall of 07 pugs since the latest model pug is simply not in any way a viable dog. Jokes aside, the very fact that such apparently useless creatures were bred, cosseted, and sought after by their devotees indicates a definite shift in the 19th century to the cultivation of dogs as something beyond workers and helpmates. Dogs were now a leisure activity. The great historian of pugdom, and that's an actual word that she used a lot in her book, was Wilhelmina Swainston Goodger. Of course, that was her name. And she suggested that, like most of the smoosh-faced breeds, the pug originated in China, a smooth-coated cousin of the Pekingese. Pugs were imported into Europe at least by the 17th century, probably as early as the 16th, with ports of entry variously given as Russia, England, and Holland. The last of these seems the most likely. Goodger suggested that they may have been brought back from China via Japan by the Dutch East India Company, and soon they found adherents back in the good old Netherlands, for whom nothing is too weird. I speak with love as a part Dutch person. Similar to the Greyhound, part of how we know what pugs looked like and how those looks have changed over the years was that as favored pets of the aristocracy, you find a great many artistic representations of pugs. The Dutch masters in the 17th century were fond of including them in scenes of daily life, as well as in portraits. In the 18th century, William Hogarth, a famous painter, printmaker, and satirist, did a self-portrait of himself with his pug, Trump. He may have been one of the first victims of the criticism that owners and their dogs start to look alike. All kidding aside, famous owners have a lot to do with the breed's popularity. And this is still the case today. I mean, how many people would know what Portuguese water dogs even look like today, if not for Bo Obama? High-profile fans raise the profile of a breed and inspire emulation. Soon everyone wants one. For pugs, the connection with royalty goes back practically to their first appearance in Europe. According to legend, William, Prince of Orange, had his life saved by a pug named Pompey in 1572 at the Battle of Hermigny when it woke him up by helpfully pawing him in the face to alert him to a night attack by Spanish forces. Pugs afterwards became favorites of the Dutch royal family, often festooned with orange ribbons. In 1688, another Prince William of Orange, having married Princess Mary of England, brought his pugs with him as they reclaimed the crown of England in the wake of the English Revolution. In the following half-century, pugs, or Dutch pugs as they were then known, attained great popularity in their adopted country. Their popularity reached its height under the patronage of Queen Charlotte, the wife of George III, the crazy one, who had a number of pugs who I'll mention again later in this podcast. Queen Victoria, too, owned a passel of pugs, though they were eventually overshadowed near the end of the 19th century by her love of Pomeranians. On the continent, pugs were also favored by one of podcaster Christine's favorites, Josephine de Beauharnais, sometime wife of Napoleon. The empress had a beloved pug named Fortuné, who, according to legend, carried messages between the two lovers under his collar and even smuggled messages for Josephine out of the nunnery of Le Carme, where she was imprisoned during the terror. Napoleon also reportedly griped, to no avail, about having to share the bed with Fortuné. 
This poor little guy, Fortuné, not Napoleon, met his demise in the jaws of the cook's bulldog, but much to Napoleon's chagrin, Josephine just went ahead and got another one. Celebrity fans can explain in part why pugs were popular, but not how we get from relatively functional-looking pugs like Hogarth's and the defective animals we know and love today. While pugs had putatively ancient origins in China, the breed, like so many that we know today, was formed and consolidated in the 19th century against a backdrop of increasing public interest in the breeding of dogs, and especially in dog shows. The first dog show was held in England, in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, in 1859, and there were only two classes of dogs, setters and pointers hunting dogs. This event proved so popular that ones like it proliferated in the following years. Even early on, though, some dog breeders and critics cautioned against the pitfalls of holding these shows. One, Judith Blunt Lytton, the 16th Baroness Wentworth, wrote a pretty scathing attack on dog breeding as practiced by, in her view, bourgeois dilettantes. In her opinion, by selecting simply for appearance and in seeking to tweak that appearance in ever more grotesque ways, (coughs) pug, (coughs) Ambitious and money-hungry dog breeders were diverging from the ancient origins of the breed and developing breeds that were ornamental rather than authentic. The only people who could breed authentic animals, she argued, were those with a sense of the breed's history. Aristocrats like her, in other words. She herself was a breeder of English toy spaniels. Here's that same paradox we saw with the greyhounds, this time stated more or less explicitly. Is the breeder's job to preserve the authentic nature of the dogs that established the breed, to maintain the status quo? Or is it the breeder's job to perfect the breed? to improve and tinker with the dog's physical and temperamental characteristics to somehow build a better dog. A very large, unvoiced part of Lytton's apparent beef with dog shows and dog breeding was that practically anyone could be a dog breeder. It didn't require a lot of space or outlay to procure breeding animals, and the rising English middle class could, in a sense, emulate their aristocratic betters by breeding animals and improving those breeds. And Lytton did have a point about the commercialization of dogs in the Victorian period. Dogs were becoming a big business. Pet products like special grooming implements, dietary supplements, and all manner of fancy leashes, collars, and beds began to be available commercially during these years. Books on dogs proliferated, too. Besides reprints of translations of Caius, the massive multi-volume Kinographia Britannica was also published in the early 19th century and subsequently reprinted. Dogs themselves could be worth quite a bit. In 1891, champion purebreds could sell for as much as £1,000, which is the equivalent of over $100,000 today. A middling to good quality purebred, not a show champion, would have cost anywhere from 10 to 250 pounds. So, back to pugs. Pugs went through a number of fads in their appearance, eventually resulting in the decidedly wrinklier and smooshed-faced creatures we see today. These wrinkles and the shallowness of their face have, of course, led to a number of health problems. There's reverse sneezing, which is that weird gaspy noise they make when they get overexcited, and the fact that they're prone to a condition called eye prolapse, in which their eyes can actually pop out of their sockets. Blech. Pug's appearance, though, could elicit really strong responses. Let me tell you a cautionary tale. Today, you've probably seen both fawn, which are the tannish, and black pugs. Black pugs were originally regarded as a fault, but Queen Victoria had one rare specimen in 1854, and a number of black pugs were introduced into England from China by Lady Brassie in the 1880s. But in the middle years of the 19th century, there were basically two types of pugs in England, both varieties of fawn, the Morrison and the Willoughby. The Morrison strain, named after an innkeeper from Wallam Green who ran a sideline pug breeding operation, were an apricot or warm fawn, with somewhat tighter skin and longer faces than the pugs of today. According to Morrison, who, let it not be gainsaid, was trying to sell pugs, his dogs were descended from those owned by Queen Charlotte, wife of George III, by 1840, firmly English dogs. 
Their opposition, the Willoughby Pugs, had somewhat cooler or stone fawn coloration, with more wrinkles, smaller eyes, and more smushed-in faces. These dogs were obtained by Lord and Lady Willoughby from a tightrope walker who had imported them from Russia. Despite the fact that both were essentially just tan, wrinkly, potato-like dogs, the two strains produced two staunch camps of followers, much like Blur versus Oasis. You couldn't like them both, and for years the rivalry continued as adherents attacked each other vociferously in the literature of the day. Within a generation or so, however, the distinction became moot. Morrison and Willoughby Pugs wound up interbreeding, crossed by other breeders. The distinction in color was mostly lost. The moral of this story? The Morrison and Willoughby supporters, one camp bourgeois, the other firmly aristocratic, were each convinced that their pugs were the real and superior ones. But in the course of a few short generations, no trace of the distinction would remain. So, disputes over dog breeding evoke surprisingly strong emotions, and these emotions are only rarely just about what the dogs look like. It's these emotions surrounding dog breeds and their underlying meaning we will investigate along with our last dog, and let it be confessed my favorite, the German Shepherd. Despite its wolfish appearance, the German Shepherd is a very recent addition to the roster of breeds. In fact, just one man was the original architect of the breed, Captain Max von Stefanitz. Von Stefanitz was a German ex-cavalry soldier and a staunch supporter of the movement to standardize the diverse collection of native German herding breeds. He was a member of the Phylax Society, founded in 1891 to promote the standardization and purity of the German Shepherd dog, and to engineer, eventually, a highly intelligent and physically powerful superdog for herding and police work. After observing an exceptional herding and working dog named Hector Linkshein, seriously, at a dog show in Karlsruhe, he bought him, gave him the even more intimidating name of Horan von Garbroth, and began to base a breed around the collection of physical attributes and talents that this dog possessed. Within 15 years, a breed recognizable today as the German Shepherd had begun to exist. Horon sired many pups, and by the middle of the 20th century, most German Shepherds had some of Horon's blood in their veins. To police the purity of the breed, in 1899, von Stefanitz and his supporters founded the Verein für Deutsche Schafferhund, or the German Shepherd Dog Society, which exists to this day. If uh, breed purity is setting off any alarm bells in your heads, it's with good reason. We'll come back to that. Von Stefanitz lays out the history and rationale behind his life's work of creating the breed in his magnum opus, The German Shepherd Dog in Word and Picture, first published in 1923. To give you some idea of the perceived scope of von Stefanitz's project, this breed manifesto starts not with the history of the German Shepherd Dog, but with the history of all carnivorous mammals, from which canids eventually derived. The German Shepherds, as he had bred them, were thus not just the epitome of a breed, but of all dogdom, a master race of dogs, if you will. You do, you see where I'm going with this. Von Stefanitz goes on to thoroughly imbue the shepherds, male and female, with human traits as virtuous examples of their doggy race. The males are watchful and quiet, the females self-sacrificing mothers, and both males and females are ambitious, only willing to submit themselves to the most powerful member of their pack, their master and their leader, their Fuhrer. These dogs, however, are only virtuous insofar as their need for work is fulfilled. If they're confined to a kennel and robbed of an outlet for their natural desire to work outdoors and serve their masters, they become degenerate, in his words, which, as he helpfully reminds his readers, literally means thrown out from their race. Further, he also has lots to say about the right and wrong way to breed and show a dog. Like Lytton before him, he does maintain that it's important to select not simply for appearance, but for working ability as well. As such, it's not about money to be obtained by the sale of pups, in his words, a very ungentile concern or even the breeding for specific confirmation and physical appearance, but rather the production of superior individuals who can do the jobs they were designed for. 
We identified the tension earlier between the desire on the part of breeders to preserve a breed or to improve it. Von Stefanitz totally resolves this in favor of the breed's improvement, and that improvement has very clear ideological overtones. The breeder has a duty to the breed to eliminate inferior specimens from the gene pool. This is doggy eugenics. The book is a seriously bizarre read today, though it's still a standard for shepherd fanciers. It's got, on the one hand, some very useful information in it, but on the other, some very weird and troubling stuff. If you like shepherds and have some time to kill, I suggest you flip through it, because where else can you read Aryan and eugenic sentiments interspersed with pictures of German shepherds and kids having tea parties, really? So, yeah, in case you were at all on the fence about this, eugenics is a capital B bad idea. Beyond the obvious ethical implications, one problem among many with dog eugenics, like any eugenics, is of course the danger of inbreeding. This is exactly what happened with the German Shepherd. Over the course of the 20th century, the breed spread beyond Germans and Germanophiles and became one of the most popular in the US and UK. And most of the pups that were sold contained DNA coming from only a handful of animals. More demand for pups meant more inbreeding, and soon you started to see dogs who were not only temperamentally iffy, aggressive, nervous, or downright neurotic, but also were physically weaker and prone to a variety of diseases, especially hip dysplasia and degenerative myelopathy, which is a, a neurodegenerative disorder similar to Lou Gehrig's disease. The German Shepherd, as conceived by von Stefanitz and his followers then, was not just a breed of dog designed to fulfill a function, either herding and tending sheep, or the later use to which it was put in police and protection work. It had become, instead, an ideological statement of Germanness. This wasn't completely lost on the countries to which the shepherd was exported either. The breed enjoyed great popularity in the years after the First World War, which was the first time non-Germans had seen it in action. In particular, canine movie stars like Strongheart and Rin Tin Tin also helped bolster their reputation as fearless, loyal, and highly intelligent. The British, however, always had problems with the nationalistic overtones of the breed's name, the German Shepherd. Instead, they referred to it, and still refer to it, as an Alsatian, a reference to Alsace, the territory disputed between France and Germany that sparked the First World War. The connection between shepherds and their actions in war would live on. In World War II, German army dogs, overwhelmingly shepherds, became one of the most visible icons of Nazi terror as they were used to police the inmates of concentration camps and prisons. The shepherd's legacy, then, is bittersweet. In a way, these dogs represent the best and worst, not of dog kind, but of humanity. To wrap it up, I'd like to say a few words about what breeds mean to us today. Walk into any animal shelter and you'll be reminded of the diversity of dogs, but also of their underlying sameness. You'll see a definite assortment. Small dogs, big dogs, lots of pit bulls, the ubiquitous and mysterious catch-all category of shepherd mix. And people make decisions, sometimes on the basis of how they identify these animals, on whether to take home one dog or another. This can be a serious problem. To take pit bulls as the most obvious example, Back in 2004, the New York City Center for Animal Care and Control actually tried to rename pit bulls New Yorkies, <laughs> cute, to combat the stigma surrounding their name, which was preventing many people from adopting them. They very soon had to give that up. But let's think about this a minute. If you have a mutt, you can actually pay to have your dog blood tested to determine its genetic makeup. But what you learn might surprise you. In a 2009 study of animal adoption agencies, the staff, who see hundreds or thousands of dogs per year and are arguably pretty informed observers, incorrectly identified a mixed-breed dog's dominant breed two-thirds of the time. This, at least in part, is why breed-specific legislation, such as that governing the ownership of pit bulls and other stereotypically aggressive dogs, is so dangerous. How do you define a pit bull? Does it have to look like a pit bull? Behave like a pit bull? Have pit bull genes? If so, what percent? It's a slippery slope. Breeds, in short, 
are an idea constructed by humans and for humans. These breeds can reflect animals' functions, their physical characteristics, or even their ideological meanings, but they are ultimately malleable and infinitely adjustable by their human authors. The moral of this tale of three breeds is, then, that breeds are in the eye of the beholder. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week!